0: The people of God. Hi, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Hannah. I'm the pastor here at the Wicker Park site of Urban Village. I am so glad that you are here. I am so glad to be here, and I would ask you to pray with me if you would, if you're the praying kind. Lord God, thank you so much for the joy in this world and help us. With the difficult parts, with the parts that we don't understand, with the parts that cause us pain, with the parts that enrage us, with their injustice. God, we know that you are in all things, but sometimes it is hard to feel it. It is hard to see it. And on this morning, on every morning, but especially this morning, we ask that in the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart, You would be, you and you alone, and if you aren't God, we would ask your help in starting over again, and trying once more, tomorrow and the next day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. It's January. Um, It's January, which means that it is a month of thinking about what it means to be alive. what it means to live a good life, what it means to live the life that we want and the life that we intend. For some people, uh, that means that two weeks ago, you made a resolution to um, read a book, right, more often than you usually do. Or for some people, it means that you made a resolution to get that promotion or buy that house or fix that thing that just always won't get fixed inside of you or outside of you. Maybe you made a pledge uh, to an extraordinary commitment to the gym (laughs) or an extraordinary commitment to your values. Uh, And plenty of those are good things, right? Plenty of the things that we pledge, plenty of the things that we try, plenty of the things that we want to find in our life, those are good and helpful and loveful. But I think that there's a risk, there's a danger in this time of the new year when we try and plan out who we will be and how. And that's that so often where we start is with what the world has taught us, which is an attempt to become perfect, to become invulnerable, right? To become great at all things. The way that we define success The way that we define goodness and a good life is by being admirable in the eyes of others, maybe. Or successful in our profession, um, or financially strong, uh, all of which I desire and I understand why people desire them, and none of which are the things that God has asked us to put first. Um, You heard a sermon last week uh, from Jarrell, who is such a wonderful part of our community, um, on the Beatitudes, right? Which is Jesus' promise over and over again that things aren't how they seem. And things aren't how we have been taught that they are. It is not the richest. It is not the most successful. It is not the prettiest or the fittest or the most admired by others, Who first in the eyes of god but it is those who the world would say are last who are the closest who are the closest to the spirit that jesus invites us to be a part of and that invites us to think about what a good life looks like what a new life looks like a little bit differently than we're used to we're doing a sermon series this month called the good enough (laughs) life if we stop striving for perfection, if we stop trying to do all of the things that the world has told us we need to do to be worthy, what are the things we do want to try for? What are the things that we think God is inviting us to attempt with our lives? (coughs) What do we want to make of them? How do we want to live them? There are a lot of different... um, Directives and passages and experiences that folks would point to as guidelines to a Christian life, but we're going to talk about one um, which, if you have gone to church before, uh, some of us haven't, many of us haven't, you've probably heard, which is Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8, some of you may have sung a song, right, with a guitar in a small room in a basement uh, about Micah 6.8 on a mission trip, maybe, um, which is what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? This comes in a part of Micah that is a courtroom scene. The people of God are on trial (laughs) for their failures and betrayals, and God has said to them, um, why? Do you not have faith in me? Why do you not love me? Why do things look as hard as they look? Um, And and they sort of respond with, well, you have a point, but what do you want from us to kill our firstborn firstborn children? (laughs) They're sort of like the whiny teenager, right? Who's like, you know, dad is like, you didn't do your geometry homework. And they're like, what do you want from me to be perfect all the time? And to like fix your whole life? Right, they're like, they're overreacting a little bit. Um, They've gotten a little melodramatic. Um, And God says, no, here's what I want from you. To do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I'm asking nothing of you that you cannot do. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm asking you to do things that you are capable of, and that will enrich your life and make it better. And here's what they are. The first one is do justice. Each week we're going to focus on one throughout January. And today it's do justice. What does it mean as God asks us to do justice in our Christian lives? There are a couple things I learned just from the way that it's phrased, right? It's not um, embody justice. Be the person who is never, you know, like you shut off all your relationships with the unwoke and you like never consume anything that isn't vegan and you are like perfection abounding. It's not embody justice, it's do justice. Um, it's not achieve justice, right? It's not make sure that society is perfect by the time you died or else, like, F, fail, you didn't do it, um, which is great because, like, we're not going to do that. If you haven't come to terms with that yet, come to terms. <laughs> not happening, right? The world is not going to be perfected before we die unless it's the second coming, and then it won't be because of anything weak. Um, right? It's not perfect justice. It's do justice. Do justice something that I think about when I'm tired, is uh, an old, old uh, text from the Mishnah, the Jewish uh, spiritual text and and spiritual thinking, which is, um, it is not up to you to complete the work, but never can you abandon it, right? Um, We might not finish justice, but we have to do it. And to do justice doesn't just mean to talk, it means to take action. To do justice means to do what people were doing yesterday, going to immigration rallies all over this country, planning immigration rallies, getting on the radio and talking about why undocumented people matter, why we must change policy, why we must protect families. Right? That is doing justice, and that is a classic form of doing justice. There are also ways for us to do justice in our everyday lives, to pay attention to fairness and to rightness in our workplaces and in our families, to stand up when we hear things that are wrong, um, or... Not stand up, right? I'm working on my ability-centric language um, to uh, to be there, right? When when people say things that that we think aren't right, and to enter into relationship and try and persuade and try and shift. I just because of the holidays had a time to um, spend a lot of time with my dad, who I don't always get a lot of time to spend with, and I remembered. I love my dad. I had, a, you know, He and I had a good relationship growing up, and I always love him, but it's easy to, to forget the things about your family members that you like because you love them. And one of the things I really like about him is that he um, works a lot internationally, and so he, he spends a lot of time having conversations in English with people for whom English is not their first language. And whenever he does that, whenever I see him do it, he always speaks more slowly And more clearly, he never speaks louder, right? He never just starts yelling at someone because English isn't their first language. He understands um, that that's how you respectfully speak with people, right? That's how you have a conversation that acknowledges um, that someone isn't stupid. You don't need to yell at them, right? Um, They have a different language background than you do. And every time I saw him do that, I thought, Um, that is doing justice, right? To live in a way that shows respect, that holds people. We want to do justice in our lives, from the ways that are small to the ways that are big, from the ways that are bold to the ways that are quiet. We want to do justice. But how, you might ask, um, in our current environment, in a political environment where we are constantly hearing Whole groups of people maligned, where every day it feels like some new giant scandal has arisen, right? You might be sort of feeling like an overflow of injustice is coming towards you. How do you approach doing justice in an environment like that? How do you approach doing justice in a world where life is hard? And there's a lot of other stuff going on in our lives besides doing justice. That's where we look to the scripture that we read today, Um, the passage from Luke, which is often referred to as the the parable of the persistent widow, parable of the persistent widow, which is that we do justice persistently, not perfectly, right? Um, Not with all of our wisdom all at once, never learning, but persistently. This widow, um, and when you hear widow, think right Um, undocumented or think... Uh, queer in some states now, think someone who doesn't have legal status, right? Because a widow had almost nothing. If you didn't have a man through whom to get stuff in this society, you had nothing. (laughs) She didn't have a lot of power. Um, And so the widow who has almost nothing and who some injustice has been perpetrated against, we don't know what case she's bringing before the judge, um, but it could have been anything. It could have been, right, like, she sells ribbons in the market, and somebody, like, stole ten of her ribbons or cheated her on a price. Or it could be that she's owed money by the family of her dead husband so that she can live for the rest of her life, because that was the only way a widow could live, and she hasn't gotten it yet. It could have been anything, but some injustice has been done to her, and so she approaches a judge. She has no power, and the judge has all the power, right? That's like the definition of a judge. I make decisions about other people's lives. I have power. And it says that this judge uh, doesn't respect God and doesn't respect humanity, which, if you don't respect God and you don't respect humanity, there's not a whole lot left, right? Um, He has no respect for anything but his own power, and she comes before him, and he will not give her a judgment. He will not give her justice. And so she comes before him again, and he will not give her justice, and she comes before him again, and he will not give her justice, but she just keeps going. And finally, at the end, it says... He had not learned to love God, and he had not learned to love people, but he was really worn out, right? He was really tired of this lady coming back, and so she got her justice. The way that we do justice is persistently, is again and again and again. At the end, it says, uh, the original Greek, it's like an idiom that sort of means, um, because he thought she might give him a black eye, (laughs) <laughs> right? Yeah. Because she, because he thought she might punch him in the face. What uh, what it is it, more likely to mean is like because he thought his reputation might be ruined. Right? If she kept coming to him and he kept failing, he gave her what she wanted. We have to have that persistence if we're going to do justice in a hard time. Um, and the persistence won't always feel like it's worth it. Right? We won't always see the outcomes of our actions. I, when I am feeling um, downtrodden, <laughs> unable to persist in justice, I look to the stories of people who came before me for for a sucker, for energy. And, and I found a new one these last couple of weeks. Uh, anybody know what year the first gay rights organization in America was founded? What year? I've heard 1940. is guess. Any others? Any others? You heard, you're cheating. 75, okay. 1924 was the year that the first gay rights organization in the United States was founded, and it was founded right here in Chicago. Right here in Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. Yeah. Um, anytime something is founded in Chicago, I just like go so hard for it, even if I know nothing about it. Um, whatever's from Chicago must be amazing. Um, and uh, it was founded right here in Chicago in 1924 by a guy uh, by two guys and then five others who they recruited. Um, the first was a man named Henry Gerber and he was a German immigrant to the United States and uh, initially as World War one began, he was not allowed to fight. He actually I think was interned in a camp temporarily or um, had some sort of, had to be in the conscientious objector camps temporarily just because he was German. Um, and we have always had trouble in treating immigrants with respect in this country, Um, but eventually he was allowed to fight, and in that fight he was sent to Germany to do administrative work for the U.S. Army, and he was sent to Berlin, and Berlin had one of the most um, active and bold, this is musical fans, this is where cabaret comes from, right? Uh, One of the most active and bold queer cultures of any city in the world at that time. Um, There were a lot of underground and not-so-underground clubs, and there were a lot of people coming out of those places, and a lot of scientists um, doing research on, like, how does sex work, how do people work, basically, institutes for sexual science and research that were popping up. And there were people actively advocating um, for gay relationships to be acknowledged and to be legal. And Henry Gerber saw that and was like, we need that in America right that seems really important and good and he came back to Chicago and he started talking to just people that he knew um, and he found one other person who became the president of the Society for Human Rights, this organization that got founded. Um, the president was John Reverend John T. Graves, a black preacher um, of what he called brotherly love and friendship to small groups of people around Chicago so, this tells you how much history we've lost, right? That the president of the first gay rights organization in the United States was a black preacher, and like, that is not a history of the queer movement that we ever hear. Um, so they start this organization, and it's seven of them, and there's a lot of problems with the organization. It's not an organization I would support today. They don't let in women. They don't let in bisexual people. They don't let in trans people, right? They're like, it's 1924, and they're working on it, but they are writing. And they're writing magazines, and they're trying to get out there this idea that being gay should not be illegal. And within a year or two, um, uh, they're unsure, a spouse or a friend of one of the seven members uh, reports them to the police, and three of them are arrested for being in a relationship with men, and they spend time in prison, and after that the organization sort of falls apart. Um, It's too much of a risk. And it falls apart, and for the rest of his life, Henry Gerber thinks of it as a failure. And he, in particular, thinks it was a failure because it only ever attracted least of these types of people. Um, He sort of thinks to himself, if I had gotten doctors and lawyers to join, it would have been fine. But instead, we had poor people, right? And we had um, uh, people who were in challenging situations, and that's why the organization fell apart. And he thinks of it as a failure, not knowing that the underside is where Jesus does his work, and that persistence is something that Jesus honors. Uh, that these are the people who God has chosen to change the world. And, and so, but he keeps writing, right? He, he, he is persistent. He moves to New York eventually. He keeps writing. He keeps up correspondences with people around the country. Some of those people he is in correspondence with end up starting organizations you may have heard of, like the Mattachine Society and Daughters of Belitis, the first lesbian rights organization, and one of the broader, they were called in the 50s, homophile organizations, uh, pro-gay organizations in the country. And these eventually, over decades, become a movement, right? a movement that we know has changed the world and will continue to, that is, then busted open wide, right, by bisexual and trans people to say this is bigger even than you thought. The persistence pays off, not in his lifetime, not the way he thought, and not with the people that he thought, but the persistence in justice pays off. And I think it's no coincidence, we can't draw a line, I don't know how, but I think it's no coincidence that Illinois was the first state in the country in 1962 to repeal its anti-sodomy law. right? The first one, decades before anybody else. Something about that energy and something about that desire for justice is honored by the world and is honored by God. The persistence. But persistence, uh, as much as I admire it in the stories of the ancestors, right? as much as that gives me energy, um, it can be hard to keep up. <laughs> there, are days, um, there are days I find it hard to wake up and make breakfast much less be a persistent witness against injustice. Uh, It's hard. It's like hard to be alive, right? It's emotionally taxing to engage with the world. Um, It's especially emotionally emotionally taxing to try and persistently say that injustice matters and that we want to do justice as God has called us to do. So how do we keep it up, right? How do we keep it up like the widow? How do we keep it up like Henry? How do we keep it up like John? How do we keep it up like so many throughout history And I think the answer is we have to have our spiritual wells filled. We have to have that rope that ties us to God, that cup that God has poured out for us, of spirit that keeps our hearts lifted and our souls joyful in knowing that what we do may be difficult, but we are in it with others and with Jesus, and we can be happy about it. Right? We can find joy in it, in that persistence. This story of the persistent widow, it starts with, um, and then Jesus told the people, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, and then Jesus told the people uh, a story about why persistence in prayer is good. (laughs) And so that means that throughout time, a lot of people have interpreted this story to be specifically about petitionary prayer, Um, right? Like, if you go, and some of you may have gone to preachers and churches like this, and I, you know, I don't normally speak ill of my fellow people of faith but like don't trust this if you hear this uh, if you just every week go in and you pray for a bigger car if you pray for a bigger house right like pray again and pray again and pray again and God will bless what you name and claim right uh, and then people get really disappointed because like that's not how this works <laughs> that's not how any of this works <laughs> um, and and it's uh, and it's it hurts their faith. Um, that is how this story has been, has been interpreted. But the other challenge with that interpretation, besides that's not how any of this works, is that what that would mean is that the widow is us, right? We have to try again and again. Um, and then the judge is God, but the judge is kind of terrible and kind of an asshole. And it's kind of hard to, like, figure out how that's God. Um, And so some people say, oh, well, if a terrible person can do it, then how much more will God do it? And I was like, all right, okay. Um, And then someone said to me, or, or, or God is saying that when we demand justice from those who are not offering it on earth, that is what prayer is. It's not an analogy for some other kind of prayer that happens in our houses away from everyone else. It's a story about a kind of prayer that God honors in us. That when we persist, that when we ask again and again, that is a way that we are praying to God for and with hope about who we are. That asking for justice, demanding justice, is a way of praying. And doing it persistently is a way to disciple ourselves to the Jesus Christ who has given us so much. Uh, that person was not the first to talk about faith this way and nor was the person I'm about to show you but um, can we get the picture of Heschel up here so uh, this is another Chicagoan which is great uh, so many of you may know this picture this picture is from um, the march uh, at, at Selma it was supposed to be from Selma but it was broken up for, for voting rights and civil rights um, and that's Martin Luther King Jr. in the middle um, and Second from the right is Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a rabbi here who fought for civil rights throughout his ministry. And when he was asked about this photo, when he was asked about that experience of walking with King, which he did multiple times, he later said, "Um, when I walked with him, it was as if my legs were praying. It was as if my legs were praying. When we devote our lives to justice and mercy as well as devotion and piety, our legs are our prayers. Our arms are our prayers. Our hands are our prayers. And persisting in justice is a form of prayer that connects us to the deepest well of life that is the character and nature of a just, merciful God. Our legs are praying when we persist in justice like the widow. But we still need, right, like we need the, we need the spiritual food to sustain. For our legs to pray, we need to be filled up, filled up with the worship music or the community, right? The people who hold us up when it gets hard and filled up with a lot else. And that's why I want this second picture to come up. This is another famous picture of that same march at Selma. And this man in the front with the tie and the backpack and the trench coat is John Lewis. John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, who has been um, acting politically now um, as an activist, right, as a congressperson, as sort of from within the system, um, trying to pass legislation for many, many years uh, from Georgia. John Lewis was recently gravely insulted by our president-elect Trump as all talk and no action. Um, but this picture is just one of many that shows just the kind of life of action and persistent pursuit of justice that John Lewis has led. John Lewis has recently been an LGBT ally and an ally of the poor, but he started out as an activist in the civil rights movement, first with a student nonviolent coordinating committee, and then with bigger national marches like Selma, which he helped to organize. And he was an extraordinary leader, and he also, this day, um, there are more famous pictures of this day that I chose not to show, not to re-traumatize people, but where he was almost beaten to death by a policeman. He thought that this day would be the end of his life. He thought that many days would be the end of his life because there were consequences for the persistence with which he pursued justice. Um, But there was something I hadn't heard about him um, before this week. I I read an interview where someone said, you know, this famous picture of you, there's a thousand questions that you have answered about um, what called you to be a civil rights activist and about the strategy that you had when you planned the march, but I have a question I I think you haven't been asked before. What was in the backpack? Right, you're, you're wearing this backpack. Uh, most people don't wear a backpack to a march. What was in the backpack? And John Lewis, over the course of his career in persisting after justice, of trying again and again and again, even when many of the voting rights he fought for still cannot be guaranteed for black Americans in this country or are being rolled back, he was arrested 45 times. He was arrested 45 times. So he'd been arrested a lot before this day. And he knew what being in jail was like, right? Which by all uh, accounts and reports is like pretty boring, right? And so he said, I knew I was going to be in jail that night. I thought I was going to be in jail that night. And so I packed my backpack with this. An apple, an orange, a work of political science by a Harvard professor, right? you got to keep the mind sharp, know what's going on in the world. And a book of spiritual thinking by the monk Thomas (sighs) Merton, because he needed to keep that cup filled, right? He needed to have that spiritual centering, that connection to God, that faith and that hope that sustains us through all things, that knowledge that at the heart of God is a promise we can rely on, that is true and that is real, that the kingdom is not a fantasy, but a reality that we can fight for every day. He knew that you have to have that to persist in justice. You have to have that. And we have to have that too. If we are going to be like the widow, if we're going to be like John, if we're going to be like Henry, we have to have that. We have to, as it says at the end of the story, do not lose heart. That's how Jesus ends it to the people as he talks about the persistent widow. Do not lose heart. I am with you. Do not lose heart. I love you. Do not lose heart. I am justice, and you can continue to fight for it with your legs or your arms or your mouth or your ears or your head, for those are forms of prayer when you persist in justice and my justice. And to keep us for that, I have one more thing that I want to share with you um, that has kept me connected to the radical hope that is God, to the extraordinary promises that are Jesus's, to the knowledge that persistence is worth it and if you want to persist with us i would invite you really strongly to come to the martin luther king day rally tomorrow morning um, it's not just a rally for energizing and for hope and for community it is all things those things it feels great um, it's also the kickoff of a year of fighting for the things that we spent the last year fighting for with community renewal society in some of which we had wins right which is policing reform here in the city of Chicago, changing of tax laws in the state of Illinois so they can fund education and not more tax cuts for large corporations. We are going to do real work. <laughs> we are going to pray with our bodies and pray with our hearts after we fill up our cups. So I would encourage you to come with us tomorrow. Um, if you need a little encouragement <laughs> to persist in justice tomorrow, to resist injustice, oh yeah, injustice. There was a space in the first sentence, there wasn't in the second, um, to resist injustice as we come um, to a year where we will need it, to many years where we will need it, to a lifetime where we will need it, I give you this letter. Some of you may know Juno Diaz. Um, he wrote The Brief, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao. It's probably what he's most famous for. A couple other books, they're all incredible. He's Dominican-American. He's super, he's just so funny. <laughs> just a really good writer. Um, but this is a letter that is not funny. It just, like, makes me cry every single time. <laughs> that he wrote, I think, to his sister, maybe his cousin, um, after she had spoken to him the day after the election, Uh, and then he published it in the New Yorker. We'll put it in the newsletter if you want to find it. Querida, I hope that you are feeling, if not precisely better, then at least not so demoralized. On Wednesday after he won, you reached out to me, seeking advice, solidarity, I answered immediately, because you are my hermana, because it hurt me to hear you in such distress. I offered some consoling words, but the truth was I didn't know what to say. I thought about your email all day, and I thought about you during my evening class. What now, you asked, and that was my student's question, too. What now? And as I sit here now in the middle of the night and attempt to try again, so what now? I believe that once the shock settles, faith and energy will return. Because let's be real, we always knew this shit wasn't going to be easy. Colonial power, patriarchal power, capitalist power must always and everywhere be battled because they never ever quit. They are persistent, right? I will put it, in. and so we must be too. We have to keep fighting, because otherwise there will be no future. All will be consumed. Those of us whose ancestors were owned and bred like animals know that future all too well, because it is in part our past. We know that by fighting against all odds, we who had nothing, not even our real names, transformed the universe. Our ancestors did this with very little and we who have more must do the same. This is the joyous destiny of our people, to bury the arc of the moral universe so deep in justice that it may never be undone. But all the fighting in the world will not help us if we do not also hope. What I'm trying to cultivate is not blind optimism, but what the philosopher Jonathan Lear calls radical (laughs) hope. What makes this hope radical Lear writes, is that it is directed toward a future goodness that transcends our current ability to understand. Radical hope is not so much something you have, but it's something you practice. As God told us, justice is something you do. Radical hope is our best weapon against despair, even when despair seems justifiable, even when you can make the argument. It makes the survival of the end of your world possible. Only radical hope could have imagined people like us into existence. And I believe that it will help us create a better, more loving future. We believe that as hard as it is to see, there is a reason for hope. Hope is warranted. And if hope is warranted, then doing justice is required. Because that is what will lead us towards what we hope for. We ask that God will be with us in it. That the ancestors will be with us in it. That we will be with each other in it. To strengthen and fill our cups for the persistence that justice will require. Amen.